0: I am a movement and I invite you, whether you feel lost, broken or pretty cool, all are invited, but there's a lot to do, so grab a drink and settle in, let me help you find your breakthrough. hating another person because of the color of his skin, or his background, or his religion. People must learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Quote by Nelson Mandela. Welcome to this episode everyone. I'm so delighted that you could dedicate time out of your day towards listening to this episode and just going about doing some insight into yourself and learning more about who you are, where you came from, and where you want to be. In this episode, we're addressing race, uh, gray area race to be more specific, and I really wanted to focus on this type of racism because I feel like it's not as black and white as the typical racism that we find. Now there are other forms of racism that exist that might be a little bit too hard to pick up or even identify, and I felt like I wanted to do this just not on my own, but also gathering thoughts and opinions from other people so that we could share it on a platform that was safe and just open to hearing each other out and also educating others on how to do better so we can be better. However, I should admit that upon doing the research and asking people for their opinions, I did actually find a bit of a unique and slightly common thread of certain people of colour who have actually not experienced, um, fully experienced a type of racism that maybe I may have experienced. And it may be attributed to um, their upbringing, uh, the area that they live in, or the exposure that they got to different um, races in their environment. That being said, I actually want to start this off by addressing one of the recordings that was sent to me about someone who experienced actually quite minimal racism um, because of the area that they were born and raised in and I just want to draw your attention to this so that we can also emphasize that just because um, black people do face racism not all black people have fully experienced racism or even gray area racism and that you know we're all different and we all have our own um, unique experiences when it comes to the issue of race. Sometimes it doesn't even need to take having experienced race um, yourself to actually do something about it if it is still a problem that the rest of the world is facing. This is what this person had to say when I asked them if they've experienced grey area type of racism before.
1: Um, no, not really, because... Yeah, people from predominantly black area, yeah, and I spend most of my life here, so like not really because black people here occupy most positions of power, so like in your schools or like your majors or whatever, whatever. yeah, it's mostly like black people, so, um, nah, not really. Um, and yeah, since getting to university, um, yeah, nah, not that I can't call Cause, yeah, I live, I never lived in Gris, I always lived outside, so, yeah, my first place I lived was in accommodation, was black, was almost, almost exclusively black, so, nope, um, like, at most, would probably be during high school, like, inter-house you know, when you computer like other schools and stuff during the athletic season. Yeah, because um we'd usually be pulled in with um Africans slash white schools because yeah, like we yeah, my school was like also one of like the, the better schools around. So like yeah it's, um kinda there but like not really because then it's, it's more like directed at the school and like you as an individual and the fact that it's a, it is a school, the school can't fight for itself, you know? So yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was, yeah, to that extent. So I don't think I've actually been a victim of, or yeah, a direct victim of systematic discrimination. I think I've just been privileged by my position. Uh, but yeah, in general, like from from people, like yeah. But yeah, I never take it too much to head because as soon as I realize it's a racist, mm-hmm. yeah, I dismiss anything else. have So all
0: When I decided that I wanted to do an episode on race, I was very hesitant and conflicted about whether or not I wanted to do this episode. Just because you know we've all experienced a lot of different kinds of discrimination and injustice towards us within our race, our gender, um, our sexual preferences, and our religion, and just so many other aspects. Um, but there was a big part of me that also felt like I wanted to do more than just you know post um, a post on it or you know have conversations within my. Close circle of friends, and you know, I'm a student, so I couldn't really donate to the causes consistently, which is someday what I hope I wanted to do. And protesting isn't an option right now because of the lockdown situation happening in our country. But I still felt like, you know, I wanted to speak up and just try and do something about about this from my own perspective, but also from other people's perspectives as well. I also wanted to do it in a very sensitive, civil, and honest manner, while still trying to just decode a little bit about the racial injustices that um, people of color have faced, but also the, the different um, experiences that white people and other people of color are willing to share. It was it was a journey. I really tried to do as much research as I can to just educate myself so that I can bring forward an episode that was worthwhile and is also handling the topic with the grace and um, sensitivity that it deserves. That being said, uh, this episode is structured in such a way that it just tries to educate you out there who's listening to this this episode and tries to just give you informed information about um, the long fight that still needs to come to overcome this unfortunate injustice this episode is not meant to solve racism in an hour or to make you just think that it's so easy to just solve racism by just releasing a couple of conversations on it it's just more of a educational standpoint to just help you maybe understand more about the different types of racism that exist out there you just think differently you know, help you to just see things from other perspectives and when you do decide to have a conversation about this or to do something about this do it from a point of, of knowledge and based on facts that you have make an impact this is what I decided to do in terms of the structure for the episode so I'm going to categorize each type of racial um, injustice that I've researched um, it's not an exhaustive list there are a lot of different kinds of racism out there. These are just the points that um, I decided to highlight that are based on my own experiences as well as um, experiences that other people were willing to share. I also did um, rely on conversations that I had with other people and I, and asked them to also share their experiences with race, um, privilege, microaggressions, and things like that. I'm going to discuss each category and then I am going to then play a recording of someone who just speaks on their experience with racism. It doesn't necessarily need to be linked to the specific category I'm addressing, but just so you can hear different standpoints on their experiences with racism. The um, recordings that I'm going to share are based on um, different races of people from black to white I am going to alter their voices so they can remain anonymous because it's not about the person who's actually experienced the race, it's more about the story that they're willing to share or their lessons from living in a post-apartheid era. I also want to issue a trigger warning because some of the information that I'm about to share or recordings that I'm going to play might be quite sensitive. So please do listen with caution and only listen if you are ready and willing and able to do so. Please remember to put yourself first and just make sure that you are 100% able to allow yourself to listen with an open mind and learn more from this. Without further ado, let's dive right in. To kickstart our conversation about the different categories that I want to discuss, I actually want to play a recording that I felt really summarizes a lot about what I wanted to discuss and just give you an idea of the direction that I took when um, I came up with a lot of the categories that I decided on. This recording does showcase a person's experiences with racism, but different forms of racism that I felt was um, really fitting for igniting this conversation. (laughs) So yeah. Let's get into this recording.
1: Citizen is real. Um, I think that privilege has allowed people to be ignorant. Uh, I think, you know, because they haven't experienced or witnessed it or, you know, they haven't been, people with privilege haven't been, been affected by it, do not really understand the impact that it has on us. Um, we can see that. Um, There is systemic racism. We see that, you know, black people aren't given the same opportunities as white people. We're not getting paid the same way. We're not getting capital opportunities and investment opportunities the same way. Um, You know, healthcare, insurance, things like that. Um, And I'm, I'm hopeful that our generation can change that. Um, I hope that our generation can create and educate black people on ownership on, you know, can promote ownership, that we own our own businesses, our own land, our own assets. I hope that, you know, black people can support each other, our businesses, our ventures, and yeah, um, you know, I think it's sad that people are still losing their lives because of that, because of police brutality, you know, and it's it's a thing that is happening worldwide, you know, we saw a video of a man, um, the police putting his knee on his head, and you can see that this police had no remorse, no regret for what he was doing. And it, it, it is painful because as a black person, when I look at that, I see me even though I'm in another country, but I see me because if I was in that position, that man would have done the same thing. And, it, it, and, and there's plenty of people who have died. This was the, um, uh, a so-called sort of Will Smith said that racism hasn't increased. It's just being filmed. There are plenty of cases like this, you know, and, uh, I'm happy that people are fighting or protesting, you know, it's time that things change now, you know, and I, I hope even in our country, cause ever since the lockdown, we see that, uh, gender-based violence has um, ever since the lockdown, the, 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 there's been a number of cases being reported, and um, I think it's, it's, it's. I think gender-based violence and racism are human problems, you know? and I think that we all need to stand up. We all need to protest. You know. Um, uh, and 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 I think that everyone should take a stand. It, even if someone close to you doesn't or has, you should still take a stand. You should still want to protest. You should still try to protect women and people from going through that. You know, it doesn't have to be someone close to you for you to understand the calamity, you know, the torture that women go through on a daily and. Um, I think we really we, we need to also
0: take a stand, we need to fight Thank you for the opportunity. I think I speak for everyone when I say that we all have our own version of um, experiences when it comes to race, and that we all attribute that to the things that we saw maybe in our upbringing, or what we learned coming from our parents, or what we saw on TV. But the point is that it's based on our experiences growing up. Have you ever asked yourself what was your very, very first experience with um, racism? Not even outward racism, but just realizing that you're a different skin color than your friend or the way other people treat you is different to the way they treat your friend of a different kind of color. And that could be even being as young as being in crèche, nursery school, kindergarten, as other people call it, and it can really grow from there. And it comes from our parents' perception of racism and how they directly or indirectly impose that on us as we're growing up. There's an article um, written by Ashley Gaston from CYF News that just talks about a little bit about what racial socialization is and how it can be used to either benefit or disadvantage the upbringing of a child. A short summary of it says that parents of a specific color, in this case people of color, use it to raise their children in a country that may be be predominantly a different race, or where their specific race has been discriminated or um, disadvantaged. So in our case, it would be maybe thinking of apartheid, where um, black people were discriminated against for basically the color of their skin. The article says, Parents of black children, like all parents, are faced with the privilege and responsibility of raising us with culturally appropriate values and principles to prepare us for adult roles. Our parents are tasked with teaching us how to navigate and sometimes even survive a society that that may give messages that undermine our parents' efforts. The way in which our parents teach us how to navigate these often contradictory messages or teach us what it means to be black is called racial socialization. So this can happen in many different shapes or form. Maybe you can also think of a few examples where your parents may have emphasized the color of your skin or explained how the color of your skin may benefit or disadvantage you growing up. A few examples include when messages are emphasized about pride in being a black person or when you're warned about your racial injustices growing up or when your parents um, tell you about different ethnic groups and the mistrust that could exist within those ethnic groups or even when your parents don't tell you anything about race at all. They either shut it off, they never bring it up, they never address it. That's also a form of racial socialization because in that case, It might even be a subconscious form of racial injustice. So examples of where these things can apply can be where a mom buys their daughter books with black main characters or dolls that are black. Other times, racial socialization can happen by chance, like when a son observes his father looking disturbed when he's watching a news broadcast about an unarmed black boy being shot by police. Those things are just a few factors that can exist in defining racial socialization. It's very difficult to get a balance between teaching a child about race and then almost, quote, over-teaching them in such a way that that is all that they see and they make a decision based on that and um, that might actually be used to disadvantage them growing up. It is quite a grey area of a form of racism that might be really relative to your upbringing, and who you are as a child based off of what your parents taught you. And I wanted to start here because racial um, socialization is really um, our experience with racism growing up. For me, I heard the stories from my parents about their experiences with apartheid, and it helped me come to a realization about the different types of races that are out there. There is a fine line between establishing how much is enough to teach your, your child about uh, different races and if you should even teach them about it at all. And whether you decide to do so or not is still a form of racial socialization because it does still um, impact the child and make the child come to, their, to conclusions on what they think it's like to live in the color of their own skin. There's more on this article that you can check out online. But just to conclude on this category from the article, there is an expert on racial socialization who just describes that not giving messages about race is fine until it's not. In other words, youth who do not receive many messages about race do very well psychologically until they encounter racial injustices because they are unprepared for it. Our parents should also take care to prepare us for racial inequalities but not to overemphasize the existence of such inequalities, as they can also be harmful to our self-esteem. Regardless of gender and age, youth who receive many messages about being proud to be their race generally do better than their peers who do not receive as many messages. So let's get into a recording of just speaking about their experience about race uh, so you can get more um, insight.
2: So I think when it comes to racial discrimination, I feel, while personally, it's something that I've experienced and, and seen, especially in a social setting, especially as being black woman, you are kind of then brought up, from a very young age even, to believe that the standard of beauty is everything that is not black. So, from preschool even, I, I saw a post recently that made me think of you know, back in preschool when we were coloring, there was this um, specific color that looks very, you know, tan-like, which was literally called skin color. And if you look at that color properly, you'll see that that color is actually a lot closer to white skin than it is to black skin. So from a very young age, you taught to believe that this is what skin should look like because yours is obviously much darker than that, you then start to question, well, why is my skin so dark? And then you look at it in terms of things like when you then go to school and your school uniform has very specific um, details of how your hair should look like to be quote-unquote neat. And that often means changing your hair into a very unnatural state so that it can be considered neat. But white girls and Indian girls get to, you know, wear their hair as is. But we have to have it braided, we have to have it, you know, lying flat on our heads when it naturally does not lie flat on our heads. And that then, like, transcends to so many different like spheres of life, and a story that I then experienced was, you know, I was in, within a group of friends, and there was one girl in our group who was very, very light-skinned, and I remember there's this one guy who then said to her, a white guy, was, wow, you're actually really pretty, because you're lighter than the rest, and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> So basically what we're saying is because she's light skinned and a lot closer to his skin then and only then is she considered beautiful and that is a message we see everywhere. You can even Google professional hairstyles and you'll see it's only pictures of white people and then you Google unprofessional hairstyles and it's people who are black. So For some reason, everything that is black is considered not beautiful, unprofessional, you know, not neat, not not this, not that. So we often have to then change ourselves to look more white in order for us to be considered right. I did not mean to rhyme, but it (laughs) it turns out it does. And that for me is such a really dangerous form of racial discrimination because it then makes children, especially young black children, grow up to believe that they will never be beautiful unless they look more like their white friends or even their Indian and colored friends.
0: The next category is a widely controversial one and one that really deserves its own episode. Hopefully, I will address it in much more detail in the future. And that is privilege. Notice I didn't specify this grace of privilege, Because, in my opinion, and this is really my opinion, I feel like we all have our own type of privilege in one way or another. Even outside of race. To focus more on this uh, category, I wanted to look more into the whole black versus white and focusing deeper into uh, white privilege. Because white privilege is something that a lot of people have. And a lot of people have witnessed. To back up this narrative, I actually found an article, quite a famous article underneath about this, by the author of the name of Peggy McIntosh, who wrote an article called White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. In that, Peggy shares her own experiences with white privilege, and to also see that it is something that she's experienced and something that she's witnessed, That being said, I'm going to read a little bit about what she said in the article and I would highly, highly encourage you to read the whole article. It's only seven pages long. (laughs) Just so that you can also get a little bit more insight to see if you may have exhibited or even experienced a form of white privilege. She goes like this. I was taught to see racism only in individual acts of meanness, not in invisible systems conferring dominance on my group. I have come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets that I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, codebooks, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. Having described it, what will I do to lessen or end it? I've begun to count the ways in which I enjoy unearned skin privilege and have been conditioned into oblivion about its existence. My schooling gave me no training in seeing myself as an oppressor, as an unfairly advantaged person or as a participant in a damaged culture. I decided to try to work on myself, at least by identifying some of the daily effects of white privilege in my own life. I've chosen those conditions that I think in my case attach somewhat more more to skin colour privilege into class, religion, ethnic status or geographic location. The following points are the ones that she highlighted and they are taken for granted privileges to enable people to understand how people of colour may experience society differently. Try to count how many statements you've experienced feeling and see where you may stand with the type of privilege that you may have experienced or exhibited in the past. I should mention that she did highlight about 50 points and I'm only going to mention about 15 and you can check out the rest on her article. So here they are. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area which I can afford and in which I would want to live. I can be pretty sure that my neighbours in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. When I am told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown that people of my colour made it what it is. Whether I use cheques, credit cards or cash, I can count on my skin colour not to work against the appearance of financial reliability. I can swear or dress in second-hand clothes not answer letters without having people attribute these choices to the bad morals, the poverty or the illiteracy of my race. I can speak in public to a powerful male group without putting my race on trial. I can remain oblivious of the language and customs of persons of colour who constitute the world's majority without feeling in my culture any penalty for such oblivion. I can be pretty sure if I ask to talk to the person in charge, I will be facing a person of my race. I can easily buy posters, postcards, picture books, greeting cards, dolls, toys and children's magazines featuring people of my race. I can be late to a meeting without having the lateness reflect on my race. If I have low credibility as a leader, I can be sure that my race is not the problem. I can easily find academic sources, academic courses and institutions which give attention only to people of my race. I can choose blemish cover or bandages in a flesh colour and have them more or less match my skin. There are a lot more points that she mentions there, so please go through those and see where you lie on the white privilege spectrum. She goes on to say, If these things are true, one's life is not what one makes it. Many doors open for certain people through no virtues of their own. My skin color was an asset for any move I was educated to make. In proportion, as my racial group was being made confident, comfortable, and oblivious, other groups were likely being made unconfident, uncomfortable, and alienated. Really profound article there. It just really makes you think about how you've experienced white privilege or how you thought white privilege could exist, being a person of colour or even being a white person yourself. And here's the thing, white privilege does exist. Not everyone deals with the same kind of white privilege or exhibits the same kind of white privilege. But there is a certain type of privilege when it comes to one skin color over another. And once we begin to address the certain situations where one privilege has been placed higher than the other, maybe then we can start to delve deeper into breaking down the structures that are built upon privileging one race over another. I'm going to play another recording on someone else's experience with racism with some ties to privilege. Just to showcase another opinion about this category. Here it is.
2: It wasn't until I started going to university where I started realizing just how privileged I was. Um, as a white person, I was taught to see racism in individual instances. Of nastiness and express overt forms of racism, not necessarily in the sense of invisible systems which confer dominance on certain groups of people. I was taught um, that racism is basically something that puts someone at a disadvantage, but I never thought of it as a way Um, which puts me at an advantage, and this becomes very dangerous because you are basically taught not to recognize your own privilege, and in my sense my own white privilege, but I do feel that describing and starting to understand your white privilege makes you newly accountable, I think once you start realizing that you are basing most of your knowledge of of racism based on a source of unacknowledged privilege, um, you understand why there is a sense of oppressiveness and unconsciousness which comes with racism, which is often, if not as dangerous even more dangerous than the overt express racism because it instills your every in everyday life. Um, I am someone who is dating a person of color and this obviously hasn't come you know very easily most times besides the fact that people often stare or literally even make direct comments towards us which you know it's embarrassing but obviously it's more embarrassing and more hurtful to my partner who is a person of color. Um, In this sense I usually draw from one of my favorite books ever written by one of my favorite authors um, Americana written by Chimamanda and Gorsi Adishi, um, where one of the main, well the main character dates, she's a black female and she dates a white male and there's a point in the book and you realize that you know these these two people they do discuss race but they don't necessarily critically engage with the terms um, and what it means to be in a position of white privilege per se, and you know this becomes quite a slippery slope because feelings are not expressed, there are tensions that lie there, and it's difficult to express to your partner that you feel that they are in a privileged position and that they can't necessarily make the comments that they are making, but open and honest communication is key. And you start to realize how race works in an environment where people fail to acknowledge the existence of racism. It then becomes this subtle oppression. So, you know, there was this one point in my relationship where I, you know, we were discussing travel plans and I've always wanted to go to Europe. That's honestly like one of the places that I would love to go. But what I didn't keep in mind was the systemic racism that prevails in all these areas that I would like to travel. And it seemed to concern my partner quite a lot. And I'm quite ashamed to say this, but I often dismiss this. um. And now, you know, after reflecting back at everything and starting to acknowledge and be accountable for my white privilege and my position um, in society, I realized how selfish that was of me. I've also recently started reading um, a new book, All About Love, written by Bell Hooks, and I think just it's something that I'd like to share, um, and it's something that um, Martin Luther King Jr. actually expressed at some point in which he says it's with regards to segregation. He says, I must urge you to be rid of every aspect of segregation. Segregation is a blatant denial of the unity which we have in Christ. It substitutes an I-it relationship For the I-thou relationship. It relegates persons to the status of things. It scars the soul and degrades the personality. It destroys community and makes brotherhood, and I would add sisterhood, impossible." Um, This, I think, you know, with everything happening um, And with everything that has been happening in today's society, it's also important to remember the position of love in every situation and how powerful that word and the effects that come with it, how powerful love can be in manifesting and affecting change. Thank you for listening to me and for giving me the opportunity to share my thoughts on this matter.
0: Okay, so next up I want to talk to you about systemic racism, and all the various forms of racism that are linked to systemic racism. And before I jump in, let me just give you a little bit of a definition. So systemic racism refers to the rules, practices, and customs that were once rooted in law. These may have changed over time, but the racism of this kind still infects the very structure of a society today. And before you think anything less, yes, systemic racism really is a thing. And if you don't believe me, here are some facts from the internet on how rife systemic racism can actually become. Some of these actually still apply in the essay today. When it comes to wealth, according to one study, white families hold 90% of the national wealth. Think of it like this. For every $100 that white families earn in income, black families just earn $57.30. When it comes to employment, over the past 60 years, the Black unemployment rate has been consistently twice that of Whites. Also, studies show that potential employees with the same qualification and similar CV as their White counterparts are less likely to be hired if they have an ethnic name. This is actually very evident in South Africa as well. When it comes to housing, Black ownership is now at an all-time low, holding only 42% compared to 72% for Whites. Moreover, redlining, which started in the 1930s, is still applied today. This is when you refuse a loan or insurance to someone because they live in an area deemed to be a poor financial risk. Redlining became an accepted practice amongst banks in South Africa in the late apartheid years. And during this time, the banks of African cities experienced a substantial increase of population growth based on quote, black African rural to urban migration. When it comes to policing, statistics actually show that black drivers are about 30% more likely than whites to be pulled over by the police. Healthcare also applies because black people are far more likely than whites to lack access to emergency medical care, especially considering that in South Africa, more black people don't have medical aid as compared to white people. The hospitals they go to tend to be less well-funded and staffed by practitioners with less experience. That's just a little bit about systemic racism. I want to take this opportunity to also hone in a little bit on systemic, on a specific type of systemic racism, um, and this is known as institutional racism. If systemic racism is the large spider web, then institutional racism is the threads that run throughout. This is racism that occurs within social and governmental institutions and referred to the blocking of people of color from the distribution of resources in a systemic way to benefit white people. There are some classic examples from university experience, such as the 2016 Afrikaans Must Fall movement, where black people demanded that there be more transformation in terms of representation from the black community instead of just the white community in universities throughout the whole of South Africa. That sparked a lot of protests in universities and demands from from um, various students to, to the board of the universities to push them to introduce more more transformation so they can also feel represented. That also exposed quite a lot of controversies in and around universities, such as people asking themselves and asking the universities why Afrikaans people receive a separate question paper as compared to English people. Why don't they combine the question papers so that English people can also see the questions that are being asked in, in the Afrikaans question papers because they were of the opinion that What's being explained and asked in Afrikaans question papers are more detailed than what English students were receiving. Um, there were a lot of controversies like that in and around that time, and it also really just forced the universities to introduce more transformation amongst peers and amongst um, just the different facilities that they had in university. At my school, uh, we had a lot of changes happen where residences that had... Afrikaans' names were changed to English names, buildings, certain building names were changed, certain mediums of um, explanations were translated a lot more to English, just to keep it more fair and diverse um, for the students that were actually attending that university. And um, the university did also try to fight the system, and this applies to a lot of the universities, in the sense that, you know, the university was once an Afrikaans' university, so they wanted to also keep their cultures and traditions intact. However, it also almost fell flat because students felt unrepresented. So that's why they just wanted to meet a form of compromise where every student that goes to the university could feel like they could freely and equally be represented. A lot happened from then into now and a lot has changed and still needs to change just to make it more diverse for a student who actually... Walk through um, our campuses day in and day out. There is also a wider conversation that needs to be had with regards to institutional racism within high schools, private schools, and public schools, and maybe even in, in primary schools. In fact, they, there's actually an Instagram handle that was created recently. Um, called You Silence, We Amplify, which is a platform in which students and alumni recount the trauma they suffered as a result of racism at the hand of staff and students in the school. This platform is actually quite an interesting platform because students are freely sharing stories of the experiences that they had going to the schools that they went to, especially in private schools, and um, how they felt that they weren't protected by school heads and school bodies who were in place there to first and foremost protect them. So they really took advantage of this outlet and spoke and revealed quite a lot of stories of their own where they felt like they were mistreated because of the colour of their skin. Two examples to form of um, a lot of the stories that were shared or are shared on this platform is the whole hair policy where schools believe that for black people, if your hair is let loose in an afro and not tied behind your back, then that is not allowed according to school policy and school rules and students have been fighting this ever since the incident that happened in Pretoria Girls High some two years ago where a girl protested against her school for not letting her wear her hair her natural afro hair at school and saying that it was untidy which was unfair and discriminatory against uh, black students. There can also be some forms of um, discrimination when it comes to the leadership that's in place at schools. I actually share very similar sentiments to that situation and I've actually experienced it firsthand. And I recount my experience in the story that you're about to listen to right now. And this is followed by somebody else's submission on their experience with systemic racism. Take a listen. One of the distinct memories I have about systemic racism actually revolves around my high school years um, in grade 11 to be specific. So uh, I'm sure you know that every high school has a metric council, um, RCM, uh, student body, um, just whatever leadership you can call that's normally a select number of grade 12s who are then prefixed for the rest of the school. And my high school had um grade 12s uh 30 i think it was about 34 grade twelves, who were chosen for the matric council so i went to a workshop, school and the whole process about the matric council was basically that you'd get nominated in grade 11 and then you would almost defend your nomination by answering a couple of questions about why they should choose you grade 11s of that year would then go through those applications and then at a specific point in time would then vote for the metric council and then they would then be selected as metric council for the next year when they're in metric after that whole process happened um, i got chosen for the metric council which was great then there was a second process which was choosing the head boy head girl and underheads in our high school we had six um, positions allocated to that which was the head boy the head girl and then two underheads two Two underhead boys and two underhead girls. That process in itself um, entailed uh, interview process. If I remember correctly, we had to then choose for the um, underhead boy and underhead girl, and the head boy and the head girl amongst the thirty-four chosen prefix. On the night of our induction into metric Council, the announcement of the underhead boys and the head boy and underhead girls and the head girl would be selected. Things just to say on that day. I did not get the position of being either hit girl or under hit girl which was said um at that time it was actually given to um a close friend of mine from that time and she got one of the roles as under hit girl and I felt like it was a little bit racist because like we all worked for that responsibility I get that but also it almost seemed as if they could only be like limited amount of POC so people of color within the, the top leadership to keep the peace at, at the high school. But mine was a lesser defeat as compared to the head boy that was chosen because there was a, another person who really I think most of the school could agree he was the one that was supposed to be head boy and somebody else, a white person who didn't do half of the, the accomplishments or half of the activities that the other guy did ended up getting the position. And the person who didn't get the position was black. So that was a bit of uh, institutional racism because our high school was very rooted in we want you to do good, but we don't want you to do better than you know that white person. And it reflected quite a bit in the leadership especially at our school, because other examples, um, out of the whole group of 34 people who were chosen, only about six were people of colour. And we were the most that there had ever been of, of black people within the mature Council, because the previous years before, before us, there were probably maximum two or three. So it was it was like they were limiting the amount of black people who they wanted to put in power. And yes, the, because it was a work school, there was a majority white people as opposed to the black people. But as I carried on going into the other grades, the, the ratio of black people to white people started to increase. I think by the time I got to my track, there were about, I want to say there's a total of seven classes in my grade. And about three of them were English. So the numbers still didn't add up in terms of people who were in leadership. And it almost also reflected in the teachers that we had in that school because... Literally, out of the the whole um, teacher's body, there was only one black teacher. All the other teachers were white. So even there, the racial imbalance was very evident. But yeah, that's just a little bit of an example of how institutional racism, systemic racism was put in place to almost limit people of color and not let them meet their maximum potential as compared to the white people who were at that school. I hear through the grapevines that things are a bit better now. Um, The ratio of black to white has been more balanced in terms of just the amount of classes that are available for English and Afrikaans learners. I'm not too sure where the structure in terms of the teachers lie right now. But also the numbers in terms of the metric council are becoming more and more fair as the years go on. At least there is some improvement, but obviously there's still room for more.
2: Um, when it comes to the issue of racism, I think the the fact of of it being systematic oppression is a lost on a lot of people. Racism is more than being called the K word or a nigger or you know it's more than white people not liking us. It's It's me going to school, the same high school, with a white girl, right? finishing with the same grades, getting into the same varsity, the same course, graduating at the same time, applying for the same job, and her ending up making more money than I do. Let's not even stretch it to that, because um, over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed a lot of... Disenfranchised white people saying no but we're not racist and white privilege does not exist because we did not experience it. We grew up struggling as well. We didn't have money for school. Fine. Let's let's play it out, right? We go to the same school, right? A school that I might have only gotten into because I lied about where I lived. So even though my parents had the means to put me in a good school, I might have had to lie about where I reside, because where I live is not necessarily, and I don't, I've don't, never understood that, how an inconvenience for me that I am willing to bypass suddenly becomes a problem for you, but anyway, so that happens. We get into the same school. You don't go to varsity because you don't have funds, right? My parents get themselves into creeping debt or I get MS to get to school. Shop. I go to school, I graduate, I get the degree, I get the job. You as a white person come in. I have to train you to be my boss. And so because you still do not go to varsity, right, I still end up doing some of your work, if not most of it. Because the fact of the matter is you didn't go to... You don't get a higher education, right? So that means that there are certain concepts that you still can't grasp. So I do some of your work, I train you to be my boss. You get more money than me, I have the degree. That's why privilege, that's systematic racism. It's people who are in a lower tax bracket, than you, qualifying for a home loan, right, being able to afford both the car and the house, where most black people in the same tax bracket or even in a higher tax bracket can only um, apply for either a car or a home loan, but never both. Because the system is rigged against them, because the color of their skin somehow makes them more high risk for a loan. They may have more degrees in the bag. They may have more, you know, years of work experience. It doesn't matter. The system is rigged, right? So I think um, that's what I've noticed is that for a lot of people, the fact that South Africa is like racism's poster child, right? racism has done its best work on the african continent right to the point where we hate each other as black people sometimes but that's beside the point it's a point for another day but the issue is that we need to understand that apartheid was not a thing that white people did because they didn't like black people it was systematic there was no We were separated and segregated from them from one another there was no opportunities for us to go to school to to dream to work we were shut out of every system and so i think also another thing that we need to understand as young black people in politics in workspaces um, you know, occupying all these high positions is that we need to change the system. You can't introduce BEE and employment equity because at the end of the day, what we've seen, and I mean, we this in high school, that what most people do is they just take the names of black people, give them 5,000, 5,000, 5,000, and then they get their BEE certificate, and it's as if... They've hired black people. We're not addressing the problem. Why do those systems need to be in place? So, what should have happened is that everything that existed uh, during Mabarbeep was supposed to be stripped down to the bone, and then we were supposed to reconstruct not move forward with the systems and as we realize what has actually been handed to us in this democracy, as we realize the brokenness, we try to catch. It's never going to work.
0: Thank you for listening so far. I hope you're finding this topic insightful. Please be sure to head over to part two of this episode for more on this conversation. Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode. I hope you learned some great insights and lessons that you can apply to your life. Please do like and subscribe to this podcast and follow the Breakthrough Projects on Instagram. Thank you once again. Till next time. Goodbye for now.